Hi, welcome to the OT Roundtable, Episode 5. Should every OT practitioner be a fieldwork educator? The OT Roundtable is a podcast where we discuss a wide range of topics related to the field of occupational therapy. We are here to shed light on things that are happening within our profession and bring awareness to these topics through raw and honest conversations. So let's meet the Roundtable. I'm Michelle with Incorporate Mindfulness, and joining in the conversation with me today, I've got Brock Cook from the Occupied Podcast. Brock, how's it going? Going well, going well. Excited to be here as usual. Thank you very much. Awesome. And I've also got Sarah Putt from OT for Life. How are you, Sarah? I am fantastic, ready to talk about our topic today. Awesome. And we have our awesome guest that we've invited with us today. Her name is Nancy. How are you doing, Nancy? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You're welcome. We're so excited to have you. So I want to tell our listeners a little bit about you. So you're obviously an occupational therapist, which is why you're here. Um, And you work at a skilled nursing facility. And you have a huge passion for education. So you have your own YouTube channel where you do education for um, fellow occupational therapists, students, practitioners, um, or just healthcare workers in general. And so that's why we wanted to bring you on today is to pick your brain about this topic of um, what makes a good fieldwork educator. You down for this conversation? (laughs) Awesome. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask this question to you first, Nancy. So um, do you feel like being a fieldwork educator is a skill? Absolutely. A hundred (laughs) percent. It's a skill. Um, I do feel that from my personal experience and from having different conversations with other students and other clinicians, um, I do feel like just like anything else, right? Even being OTs, um, being managers, anything like that, I do feel like it's a skill that needs to be um, learned. Um, it needs to be something that, you know, you can get a mentor to learn it or just from you know, previous experiences from doing over the years can also give you some, um, some skills as well. But I definitely do believe it has to be something that you learn to do so you can be perfect at it. Okay, so that's interesting. So you feel like it's a learned skill. It's not something necessarily that we're innately good at. I don't think so. Think? I think certain char- characteristics can be innate. Um, like, for example, like just being nice to people, right? That's something that is either you have it or hopefully. Um, <laughs> and hopefully you can learn that. I mean, every I do feel like everything can be learned. Um, if you're willing to put in the time to learn it, absolutely, you can learn to be nice if you wanted to do that. Um, but like I said, it has to be something that you learn to do. Yes. What do you guys I think, think? I think it's something that, yeah, like I totally agree with that. I think it takes time and experience to kind of figure that out. And it's not something that we all know, like right from the get-go. Like I think, Nancy, what you said is like, yeah, some things we might have right at the beginning and we're pretty good with that. But there right. are certain things about being a fieldwork educator that really take time, practice, exposure, doing your own research, learning from what others have done, learning from maybe our own experiences and kind of taking all of that and like molding it into this little ball or whatever you want to call it to make it where we can actually utilize that within our practice and with with our students. And I think it does. It takes time to like foster and really develop those skills that they can be adequate and not just adequate, but like that they can be good at good for the students in order to foster their own development. I'll throw this banner in the works for you then. If people need to learn how to be good fieldwork educators, how do they start in the first place? Because the way I see it is people aren't going to take students unless they feel like they can take students. And if you feel like you can take students, then your perspective is you've already got the skill set to do so. And yes, you're going to then improve that skill set as you do take students. But if you don't feel like you've got the skill set to do it, you're not going to even start. So how does that happen then? I'll throw that spanner in the works for you. 
So just from my experience, like I've already mentioned, I um, a lot of the work that I do outside of work is I help a lot of students and I get a lot of emails from a lot of students, you know, giving me their personal experiences of what's been going on with their personal photo works and things like that. Um, from what they're saying and from the many DMs that I've read, um, a lot of these field work clinicians are taking students not because they necessarily want to sh- want the students to be there to learn from them. Um, a lot of them are doing it for different reasons. Um, reasons like the management is asking them to do it. So like the rehab companies asking them to take students. Um, now, what is the reason for that? Sometimes it's because they have an extra hand to do certain things that they may not have time to do. Um, maybe even helping with productivity, which is kind of like, oh, does it really help with productivity? Maybe, maybe not, depending on how involved the student is and what kind of roles they're doing and what they're doing. Um, and then I've also have heard from other people saying that you can't, I think you can get CEUs from it if you're a clinician. So that's also a thing. So these can be some of the reasons why people will want to take students instead of saying, I'm taking a student because I genuinely want to take a student to help them become better clinicians. So we kind of have to know the reason, the intentions of why they're taking a student, because I think that's what makes the biggest difference. I've seen a lot of uh, places also will take students because it's almost like like a free trial before you buy. So if they are coming up to looking for new clinicians, then why wouldn't you take a student where there's no obligation to keep them on after their placement? But if they're good, then you can sort of headhunt them a little bit. So uh, I've, I've seen that happen as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I've seen where I have a couple of friends that are academic fieldwork coordinators, and they've mentioned that they've kind of seen throughout the years where a lot of the, say, bigger organizations, maybe the management will say yes to a student to the universities, but they're not the ones that are necessarily treating the patients. They're not the ones on the ground doing the day-to-day work that would entail supervising the students. And then a a lot of times the students will just show up and the supervisors are like, wait, what are you doing here? They had no idea they were coming because it came from a higher up experience. So a lot of times they just kind of are like thrown into it and they're like, okay, uh, maybe, maybe I'm ready. Maybe I'm not, but there's there. It wasn't like they signed on to do it. The, uh, their manager or somebody else just said, Hey, guess what? You have a student today. <laughs> not good. Yeah, Nancy, I'm I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think um, a lot of what it comes down to for me with a lot of things is intention. Like, what is my intention of taking on a student? Um, And I think if we are coming from it from the place of like, I need to get CEUs or um, everybody else has had a student and now it's my turn. So I have to take a student, then uh, we're really not approaching it from an angle of really wanting to help someone learn. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that that was really important that you brought that up as well. Definitely. Um, so if we're talking about, um, learning how to be a good fieldwork educator, um, what do you, what do you feel like are some good places to start? Brock brought up the fact that many people may not feel ready, so they don't take on the role or they wait, like you're, we're talking about until they have to be and they're assigned. And then it's not really something they're interested in. What do, what do you guys think would be a way to kind of start that process? Uh, go ahead. Brock. Uh, you're right. oh, I was just going to say, I, I, I think to a degree, you kind of need to work out what skills are required to start. So there's, a, there's some skills that hopefully they already have as a clinician, things like communication skills and that kind of stuff that you need just to be an OT. Um, but I think you you kind of need to get your head around, well, what's missing before? Like, what else do I need? What else do I need to develop to take a student um, before you can sort of have a look at what makes good or bad, you kind of need to have, well, what's the bare minimum that I need to start with? And then you can look at sort of improving because everything can be improved. Like even, you know, I've been working for a decade if I, obviously I'm not take, I'm not in clinical practice now, but if I was and I was going to take a student, like my communication could still be improved. Um, my clinical reasoning could still be improved. Like everything is one of those lifelong development things. Everything can always get better. Um, but you kind of need to work out what is... Like, is there, or actually, that's probably a better question, is there certain skills 
that you need as a, a clinical educator that we don't naturally have or normally have as a clinician at all? Or is there some that just need, you know, enhancement from a clinician level to a student-taking level? Nancy might have a better insight into that than, than I do at the moment. Um, I do agree with that. I think that anything can be improved if you're willing to do it. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing. Are you actually willing to become a better um, clinician, a better fieldwork educa- educator, a better professor, whatever it is? Um, and then if you are willing to do it, then how do I go about doing that? Um, can I find a mentor, someone who have done it for years that can, you know, give me some tips and tricks on how to do it? Or um, can I take some classes? I don't know. I think they do have courses on um, AOTA. I know it's kind of expensive, but if you're willing to invest the money, if you feel like this is something that you're really passionate about and you're willing to spend that money, then why not do it so you can become better? Um, So I think those two things will probably be the best um, way to go about it. And I think one of the things that you were just talking about, Brock, about something that we might already have, but we need to improve upon within just kind of our own clinical role is really learning how to teach and not just tell. So going to our clients, if you're, if you're a practitioner, you go to a client and you're just telling them you need to do X, Y, and Z. There's, this is your home exercise program, blah, 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 blah. Okay. That's great and fine, but it's not until we actually teach them how to do it, that they're going to be able to thrive and be able to do that later on. And I think the same thing goes when we're talking about fieldwork education. It's not just telling our students, you have to do X, Y, and Z. It's actually informing them and it's teaching them how to do these things. So then they can embed the skills in in the kind of their clinical role. So there's there's that big difference between just like shoving information down their throat and actually learning the skill of being able to teach them the stuff that they need to know. I think that's 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 a really good point and that's something that I saw for many years the sort of the difference between very new clinical educators and you know uh, clinicians that have been doing it for years was the very new uh, clinical educators, their sort of, uh, and I'm generalizing, but their perspective on it all was here, I'll teach you what I do, as opposed to I'll teach you, you know, how things work and you kind of develop your own sense of who you are as an OT, uh, which is something that, especially in my later years of taking students, was something I was much more focused on when I think in the earlier years I was still finding my own feet with regards to that. So it was very much like, uh, you get this referral, here's what I do. You know, here's how I see it, which is fine, but it's not the only way of doing things. It's almost like you're trying to make a little clone of yourself uh, out of the student as opposed to giving them the the conceptual skill work uh, and letting them develop into their own clinician, finding their own way of doing things and realising that your way isn't the only way and it's you know even though they are a student then their fresh eyes with their in some cases much more up to date knowledge of models and theories and that kind of stuff compared to you know you might not have got any of that stuff since you graduated it could have been 10 years since you even I I remember the last student I had they were talking about models I'd never even heard of I'm like oh man I need to pick up a book uh, so yeah, I, I see that as a big difference between what I would call a good clinical educator and, uh, you know, not a bad one, but a, a less good <laughs> run with that. Yeah. Do you think that can also be like a power struggle thing? Cause I feel like sometimes that can be a huge problem, um, with, I'm the clinician. So therefore I tell you what to do and how to do it. And you're the student, so you're supposed to do what I tell you to do. And then when there is a conflict with that, then it becomes a problem, right? Like, how do we mitigate that? And how do we get to a point where it's like, okay, this is your role as a student. And yes, I am your clinician. However, can we collaborate instead of being more of a dictator type of thing? I wonder if that that same perspective is just the perspective of a new grad, like in, not even just with students, but with clients as well, uh, whether they're still... I know, just sort of reminiscing way back when when I was in that position, but 
I was still trying to get my head around what the hell am I doing? Uh, so it was very much like, okay, you just get your head around, say, one assessment or one intervention and you're like, all right, so this is how it works. It's very concrete. And then from there, I mean, that's how we learn. You learn it like this is very concrete and then you start to get your head around more of the nuance around it and you can adjust things on the fly or tailor it more to the individual, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think that that same thing would be happening to that that clinician's clients as they would be to that clinician's students. And I wonder whether there's a way we can either speed that up. I don't know if there is. I don't think there is. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think that's necessarily specific to taking students. I think that's more where that person is in their career, I, I would say. I think there's a little bit of that. And I also think there's from the fieldwork educator standpoint of – allowing students to make mistakes because we can go in and we can pinpoint exactly what needs to be done in any moment to make sure that we get that session exactly how we want it to go. And especially when we're talking about like level two students and when they're starting to take over and become more independent, I know for me, I I have a very, I, I have to have this mindset of like, okay, it's time for me to step back. I need to allow them to make mistakes. Of course, safety and on all of that with a reason, right? But I have to allow them to make these mistakes so they can learn. And I think it's hard when you know exactly what should be done to step back and allow the student to learn that and, and make the mistakes. Because then you're also like, I'm sorry, like, I'm, I'm sorry you have to go through this. It's going to be uncomfortable, but you have to learn that. And I think a lot of people get stuck in that battle between, oh, I'll just jump in and save the day rather than facilitating the growth of the student. I think it reminds me Absolutely. of a, a oh. student that I had. And I don't think she's listening, so I don't think she'll mind. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I never really had an issue with allowing them to make mistakes. I, I always, even for me, I learn more from making mistakes than I ever do from like just getting uh-huh. everything right all the time. Not that I do that, yeah. but um, I remember getting, I was on an, an acute mental health ward and I remember getting this referral from a doctor for a lady who wasn't showering. They're like, she needs a shower assessment. And I immediately was like, she doesn't need a shower assessment. But my student got the referral before I did and she was like, oh, you know, can I do it? Can I do it? I'm like, yeah, go for it. Go for your life. Um Two hours later, she came back and she had all this, you know, she could do it fine and she came up with all these like visual prompts and stuff to stick on the walls and I was like, all right, now I'm now after you've done all of that, even though it was, you know, two, two and a half hours or something, uh, now I can tell you why she doesn't need that uh, is one, because I've seen her in other instances around the ward do everything that you would need to do in a shower i've seen her transfer i've seen her reach i've seen her balance i've seen her do everything that you would need to do in a bath um so we went and actually spoke to her and it took five minutes and the reason she wasn't showering was because her daughter lived like a couple hours away and her daughter, she felt that her daughter would only come and visit her to help her shower. So to her, not showering during the week was encouraging her daughter to come and see her. So we had a chat with her and went, well, you know, if you do the showering yourself, then when your daughter comes, because she's coming anyway, you can do other things. Oh, okay, sweet. Like it took five minutes. But it's like those little things that you don't necessarily, I guess are aware of as a student that you don't sort of pick up on. Like I was very used to at that right. stage, like observing just random things on the ward and like filing them away for later. Um, but I, and I could have taken the route of before she even went and did the shower assessment, like, no, don't do that. This is how it's going to happen. But I'm like, no, she needs to actually see it. And it's, you know, they do have to do shower assessments at some time. So it's not bad practice for her to go and do it anyway. And it wasn't going to hurt anyone. The client was open to it. It wasn't putting her in a weird position or anything. Um, so, yeah, allowing her to do it her way and then going, well, this is how I would do it and then letting her see how I would do it. And then, you know, she might not. She might have disagreed that my way was right, right. or better mm-hmm. or whatever you want to use, which is fine. But being able to see two different ways is, I think, the important thing. So allowing them to not necessarily fail, but do it their own way 
at least gives some perspective. It's not just that here's what I do, here's how you have to do it kind of thing. And I had I had supervisors like that and obviously I'm not real good mm-hmm. at being told what to do in the best of times. So <laughs> that didn't really go. I didn't, let's say I didn't do the best on those placements, but yeah. Um, I've been th- thinking about how it's almost like being a field work educator and I don't have children, but it's almost reminds me of like when you're trying to like parent and, um, it really is kind of a mirror of how you do things. So you start seeing this, the student respond the way that you respond to your patients and things like that. And so I think one of the biggest skills that you can do to become um, a good field work educator is to really start to learn more about yourself. So starting to explore like, okay, how do I communicate? Am I good at communicating um, and giving direct feedback in the moment? Or do I have a hard time giving feedback verbally? Um, am I better at taking some time to think about it? Um, those are all certainly things, a learning curve that I had to go through of really understanding my own communication style and somebody else's. Um, so I think probably one of the best things that we can do is really start to explore ourselves a little bit more. And that way, um, we can help our students. Um, I was just thinking, because we were talking about how we really want to set them up for success and and really allow them. What I kind of struggled with is, is so I work with children mostly, um, is like safety is always kind of an issue and I think challenging. So what are your guys's thoughts on... Um, I know some fieldwork educators are really hesitant to like... Um, teach the student like range of motion or like really hesitant to teach. I know. Yeah. Brock is like shaking his head, but I had, I knew somebody that worked in a hospital and she was really fearful of letting her students um, do range of motion when they were in like acute care because the patient couldn't really respond. Um, and I kind of saw that as a big hindrance because then it came close to graduating and the student had never practiced. Um, the same thing goes for transferring. You know, if you have a, a supervisor that's always hovering, then the student doesn't really know um, how to how to do that. So, I wonder if you guys have had any issues with that as well, like or how you've navigated safety to make sure that everybody feels competent. Um, or in my situation, I often have parents watching me, so I'm teaching a student while the parents watching. Um, but anything that you guys do for safety, because I think that that's a big thing that comes up with students. Was that a level two student or level one? Mm-hmm. So this was a level two, sadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I personally so, haven't had an experience like that. Usually when I do have students, I do allow them to do a lot of things because I do good. feel like they need to be ready um, mm-hmm. to go in the field and be clinicians. So therefore, exactly. if you range of motion I mean they should learn that stuff in school I know I learned all of those things when I was in school like how to do range of motions and how to do transfers and all those mm-hmm. different things I have um of course it's a bit different when you're actually doing it on a person that's you know heavy to transfer or they have different um diagnosis and things like that um but as long as I'm giving them the training first Uh, Maybe even like the first three weeks, you know, do some training with them and then allow them to do it or maybe do it on me and then, you know, transfer the skills. Anything that's kind of obviously depends on the student because some students Mm -hmm. take time to learn certain things and, you know, some are a little bit more shy to do things. So I think we should kind of like tailor it based on that particular um, particular student and their needs and how they learn, Um, because obviously we all learn in different ways. Right. Um, Right. Some demos some actually need to do like hands-on things in order to get it some people just look at it and then they're good um so i guess depend on how the the student learn if we can use that to kind of help them get the carryover um and i think that that would be the best the best way to do it i think my next question is oh sorry and sarah and you can totally tack on um to what nancy was saying and maybe you can also add on to this because i'm really curious um is that uh how do you instill like the confidence for your patient? So if they were, are working with a student, 
Um, I'm really curious how you guys also set up the student to feel confident because suddenly you're kind of backing off and you want the student to feel confident. And you also really want the um, patient that you're working with to feel like they're getting a skilled service. So kind of adding that safety piece in. um, Yeah, I'm curious. And Sarah, I feel like you're the right person to answer both. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready. Well, actually, and I think my answer that I was going to say originally is going to tie into what you just asked now. So it's kind of one in the same. I think for me, specifically addressing the safety part is talking. Talking and explaining everything that I'm doing, especially in the very beginning when I'm working with a client, even when the students say they're in like week one or week two, and they're just doing mainly observation and a little assisting, I am explaining everything that I'm thinking, even if it's not anything like within my realm. If I see a toy that's like five feet away and I could perceive somebody coming and tripping on it, I'm going to make note of that and be like, hey, can you go move that? Or can you go sit by that or whatever? Like, and I'm going to identify anything that I can see within my environment. And I'm just going to talk. And it's like, A, the language is good for kids anyway, because they start to hear it. The students picking it up. If the parents there too, cool. They get to hear kind of what's going on in my brain. And I think as I'm sharing all this information, like as the session is unfolding, the students are like, wow, there's a whole lot more going on than just what grasp are we looking at? Or did they stack two blocks or whatever the actual activity was? And I think that just ties into your question of, uh, of what you just said, Michelle. It's like, it's, it's talking, it's explaining things and it's letting the students talk things through. And through that talking, a lot of times they, they will be able to become more confident in how they express themselves, whether it is to other practitioners, to their supervisors, to the patients, to the caregivers, whoever else is involved. So it's a lot of that just processing, debriefing, explaining, talking, sharing. What what would happen if this happened? Or what like what did you think about this? And really just like, I mean, just taking everything apart and allowing that learning process to happen and and allow those questions to come up too. And I think that addresses both that safety, but then also the, oh, now I'm totally blanking on what <laughs> Autonomy? I don't know, like giving them autonomy. Is that a good confidence? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Woo, it just went in and out. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one that happens. This is a question <laughs> for you guys, because if it's not obvious, I'm not from America. Um, with regards to when you guys have students, where is their insurance from? It does like similar to like I know that like coders fall under the OT's license when they're working. Do students do the same, or is the insurance from the school itself? Because just as you were talking, I'm like, I wonder if that's a difference between countries. Do either of you guys know? I'm not actually, I would assume it's through the school. I know I signed all these papers. I'm not, I'm unclear on what I signed. Do you guys have <laughs> Don't know what you more signed. information on that? I'm going to send you some checks. <laughs> Just sign my life yeah. away. <laughs> I already have student debt. Please don't take me. <laughs> insurance. You mean like, uh, what kind of insurance are you talking about? Like, like uh, indemnity, yeah. 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 So like if, like we were talking about before uh, with regards to, um, like students doing something wrong or risk and that kind of stuff. Like if they do do something wrong, who's, who's head rolls? It'll be under my license Yeah, from what I believe. See, that's that's a different – I don't know. Obviously, in America too, you guys have like different rules in different states. But uh, what state are you in, Nancy, just out of curiosity? I'm in Maryland. Okay. Um, I just assume that all OTs are in California just based on my interactions. Well, not anymore because Sarah left, but – And Utah. And well, yeah, Utah. but you're, you're an anomaly. <laughs> I'm not in California anymore. I know. You, you used to be play that card. I still <laughs> picture you as a Californian OT. Um, I feel like a I just, lot of people I, have I, been I just wonder California. whether that has an impact on it because I, in Australia, there, there's no impact on the supervisor's license. They don't come under the license – they don't have anything to do with the supervisor's registration. The insurance and everything is all paid by the university and they have to abide by university code of conduct uh, in order to like, essentially be covered by our insurance. Um, I wonder whether that plays a, a bigger role in the amount of risk that clinicians are allowing their students to take 
if because it has no bearing on their own license. Whereas I feel like if it did, you'd be probably a little bit more risk averse. Because um, I was just thinking, like in in my like, I obviously I'm not going to put students in dangerous situations, but I'm not afraid to let students not fail, but fail. What does Laura call it? Fail forward. Learning opportunity, create fail, learning opportunity, fail learn. That's it. Fail learn. <laughs> create learning opportunities for themselves. But I wonder also whether that's because I know it's not going to blow back on me if something does go pear shaped. I think the school does, or the schools, and and maybe this is different depending on what school they're coming from. But I believe some schools will carry some of the liability. I don't know specifically where that line falls, but I do know that they come in with some protection from the school. But the the other big thing, and Brock, this isn't going to matter, or it doesn't, it's different in Australia, but here, depending on the insurance company that the clients, the clients and the patients are coming from, some have very strict regulations on oversight of students. And that's like constantly changing. And so anybody that is considering taking students, make sure that you are abiding by your funding source and what they actually allow for student supervision and student interaction with the clients. Yeah, I think that would that would, like we still have students that go on like private placements, so they do have like insurance based work that they do. But it would be, I mean, I'm not in that space, but it would be, I would assume, by far the minority compared to you guys, where it's probably ninety percent of placements are insurance based. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get up too off topic, but I'm curious what your guys is Brock. You brought up um, like failing if you were to fail a student. I'm just kind of. I know we're talking about is it a skill to become or is it a skilled a skill to be a good uh educator but like do you think failing a student is also appropriate do you think that's um like how do we navigate that if we are truly being skillful in the way we're teaching and is failing a student um really providing this them the support that they need I don't know if you guys have any input on that. I honestly feel like if the student is absolutely not professional um, and are doing things that you have probably talked about before, um, just not following the rules, um, just being very unsafe, even though you've had conversation, numerous conversations about it, then I do think that feeling that student is okay to a point. However, I do also feel that if you haven't had a conversation about what not to do, having clear expectations, I think is the most important thing here, um, to give that student the expectation what you expect them to do or not to do um especially the first week right we need to set some clear expectations like okay this is what you need to do this is what you cannot do um if you do this you can fail and if you don't do this you're not going to fail and for that to be very clearly stated in the first week so that failure doesn't happen but of course if you go through all of these things and the student still does not abide by these rules and guidelines then of course I think that at that point after having conversations of course at that point you can go ahead and do um fail them (laughs) if that's if that's what it mounts up to yeah 100% with the clear expectations. I think that ties into that whole communication piece and that this is something I preach all the time of how important communication, I mean, with our clients, but with our students, it is so important that our students understand where we're coming from as fieldwork educators and that they understand or (laughs) we understand each other basically is what I'm trying to say there. And once you establish those clear expectations, And if the student is not meeting those expectations and maybe you give some modifications, maybe you adapt some some things and they're still not meeting it, one of the big things that I always try to do when I am having difficulty with a student is get the school involved right from the get-go of like, if I feel like there's an issue and it's not being addressed, I, I let the school know because I don't want anyone to be shocked at midterm if the student is not passing or at final if the student is not passing. 
I want to be extremely straightforward and just transparent with my student and with the school. And also a lot of times then the school can get involved and be like, okay, let's set up some additional mentoring, some additional supports for the student. What can we do? Because our role as a fieldwork educator is to support our students to pass. But that doesn't mean that we might have a student that's just struggling. Maybe there's personal issues going on. Maybe it's just not the right setting for them and it just isn't clicking. And really, it's making sure that we do everything in our power as a fieldwork educator to try to get them to, get them to that level. But if they don't meet us there, yeah, failure's inevitable at that point, unfortunately. And I wish it wasn't that way, but it, you got to be realistic. I think it's interesting because uh, that's one, another thing that I sort of see differentiating someone who might be a really good clinical educator with someone who might be either a bit green or not as confident in it is e- exactly that, You're being able to fail a student, which sounds horrible, but I know too many clinical educators or people that have taken students, depending on what they're called in your country, that see failing a student as a reflection of themselves and don't want to do it uh, like on, you know, the school, they're going to be judged by whatever university it is, etc. Whereas it's kind of this delicate balance where, you know, yes, a student can fail because you haven't done your job right um, or done enough for them, etc. But also there's some students, like Sarah said, like it's either not the right setting, they're just, it's not clicking they just don't care about it. Like I've had students like that, like, okay, yeah, especially in mental health. They're like, I didn't want to do a mental health placement. I'm like, well, tough bickies, you're here. So, you know, put pull your finger out and put the effort in. Otherwise, you're going to fail. Um, I, I think it takes, I wouldn't say brave, but I think it takes a, a an OT that's confident in their ability to deliver the the teaching throughout a placement to actually fail a student because I think if a, if a clinician isn't uh, or doesn't isn't a hundred percent confident that they've done everything that they possibly could, I think they're going to be reluctant to actually put fail down on that that review, which again isn't doing a service to the profession. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but if you pass students that shouldn't be passed you're doing a, a disservice to occupational therapy as a whole. Harsh but fair. Yeah, I definitely do think that expectation is number one. Like if it has to be like a weekly thing, a daily thing, you know, just to kind of go over what the problem is, what are you having difficulties with? Um, can I, can we do it in a different way? Do you need more demonstrations? You know, and try to offer as much help as you possibly can to help them if they are struggling. Because like I already mentioned, we all learn differently. Um, so if you can help them to become better, then absolutely do that. Um, but I don't think that clinicians should set students up to fail because I I've heard so many stories and some actually do some things that is just like, obviously they're going to fail. So we also have a role, just like they have a role as a student, we have a role to do our jobs as clinicians to make sure that they have the training that they need to be successful as well. And I think it's not always about doing extra. Sometimes it's about doing things different. Like each student learns differently. Like some might like thrive in that sort of deep end learning where you're just like, poof, here's a client, here you go, off you go, see how you learn. Others are going to need more support for longer and then we'll get their head around that sort of independent work and doing things on their own, that kind of thing. But it's a matter of having some way, some graded sort of exposure type way to work out what the student that you currently have needs uh, from you like they're all going to content wise, they're all going to need very similar, but how you actually deliver that or how you sort of transition them into that independent working is going to be different for pretty much all students. And I think a lot of clinicians might struggle in actually working that out. And that comes back to what we we're talking about before about sort of making little clones of yourself is this is how I learn. So this is how I'm going to deliver it. Whereas it doesn't, that doesn't work. Not for everyone anyway. It might work for one in 10 maybe, but. 
I wonder if um, you guys have any specific ways that you like to um, learn your students' way that they, let me rephrase that. If you guys have a specific way that you set up your sessions or the first time that you meet so that you better understand your students' communication style or like how to give feedback, um, something that I really appreciated as a student was, although I really appreciated autonomy and doing things on my own, I also, I really enjoyed having like a weekly, at least at the end of the week, checking in like what's going well, what's not. Um, And so as a fieldwork educator, I like to right off the bat ask, how do you like to get feedback? Um, do you want it in the moment? Would you prefer it's after the session at the end of the day? Do you want to run through things? Um, and I've had a variety. Some, some students like written feedback and they can take it home and think about it. Some prefer in the moment. So it kind of just depends. Um, but then I also really like to let the student know what my communication style is or how I like feedback. And so I tell them like, you know, I would prefer you tell me in the moment. Um, and if you don't feel comfortable in front of the parent or the patient, um, maybe away from them, but letting me know right away if you're not feeling comfortable, if you're feeling unsure or something like that, I would prefer that. And even if it's feedback about myself, like, I don't understand why you did that. That doesn't make sense to me. I wouldn't have done that. I, I actually appreciate that feedback. So I think having that, um, that open door for communication, um, do any of you guys have any specific strategies or ways that you set up um, with your students, Brock? I do. Uh, I I also will do pretty much exactly what you just described. What I do find, though, is some students, especially if it's one of their first placements, don't know. Um, They're not sure. Like, I don't know what how I'm going to receive feedback best. Uh, One of the things that I like to do is I'll ask them, like, what was your favorite subject so far? Or, and what was your least favorite? And why? Because that, to me, tells me, well, like, okay, if you're liking the really practical things, then maybe that's probably how you learn best. If you're liking the highly theoretical things, then maybe that's the kind of content that I'm going to be best delivering to you. So just the same as we do with clients, I guess, is, you know, ask that sort of background information and get to know them a little bit uh, in order to not 100% know, but give me a rough idea of some inkling about how they might learn best or how they might prefer their content delivered and then try it. Like if you go, okay, so based on those in, that information, it seems like you like that sort of hands-on type stuff better, then okay, I'll give you some tasks that involve that and see how you go. Not that I'm going to sort of totally neglect the theory side of it, but we'll find a different way to deliver that. Obviously, that sort of lecture format that you were going to at uni wasn't your cup of tea. You know, let's try it on the fly while you're doing the hands-on stuff or something else. So I just find that sort of background information about how they've learned up until this point um, used to help me a fair bit in how I can tailor uh, the delivery of information or delivery of learning to them on their placement. For me, I, and I'm just going to keep going back to this because again, it's something that's so important. It's that communication piece. Communication is key to have a successful field work. And something that I try to do from day one is allow the students opportunity to give me feedback. And a lot of times they won't give me feedback right in the beginning, but I open the door and I'm say, I'm like, hey, it was day one. How did it go? Do you need any modifications? What did you think? Do you have any feedback for me? And a lot of times they're like, that was, that was a great day and I'm just tired and I'm just processing. I'm like, great. At the end of the week, how did it go? Do you have any feedback for me? So they always know that I'm allowing them to give me feedback. And then at the same time, I'm asking their feedback about how things are going and what's happening with them. So it's really opening that door. So when things get hard and they will get hard in, especially in the level twos, they will get hard and you'll have some really difficult situations that you have to face. So when things get hard, since we already have established that really good line of communication, I hope, I hope that I instill in my students that they can come to me and say, Hey, I really need this, or I'd really hope that we could do it this way, or I need a little bit of assistance here. And so they, they're, they're less afraid to come ask for it because they know that I'm like here, I'm like, come on, give me whatever you got for me. Like I'm, I, I want to hear your feedback 
And I also then want to be able to give you feedback and, and we roll with it, right? It's not like, oh, I just won't say anything because I don't want them to get mad at me or I don't want to hurt their feelings or anything like that. So again, it's communication. It's establishing that very early on. And then also allowing them to share how they receive feedback or how they just process things. And one of the stories that I always like to share is I had a student one time and it was early on and I'm like, man, they're they're pretty quiet. I can't tell if they're liking this setting. Do they want to be here? And then after a couple of days, they, they felt comfor- comfortable enough to share with me that it takes them a little bit of time to process. And they say that like they go home and they'll like sit and like stare at a wall for an hour and just process what happened that day. And as soon as I knew that, I knew that that student needed time to process. And I'm like, I get it. Like they're just thinking and they're just processing at that moment. But if that, if the student wouldn't have told me that the whole time I'd be sitting there, like, are they even liking being here? Are they just sitting and not saying anything? So it all goes back to communication. I really That's like so that. Um, I usually do this. I usually do what I do with my patients, right? Um, usually when I have a patient, the first thing I do is I need to build rapport with this patient because I'm going to be with them for a while. And I want them to be comfortable enough to come to me and ask me questions. And I want that relationship with them. So that's the same thing I do with my student. If I have a student, I want to make sure that I build a good rapport with them. I want us to have that open communication so they can come to me if they have any difficulties, if they're having a bad day, like whatever it is. Let me know. Don't feel shy. Don't feel like I'm going to yell at you, be mad at you, whatever. I'm not here to do that. And I let them know straight from the jump because I want them to be as comfortable as possible. If a patient is not comfortable with you, even if it's your child and they're not comfortable with you, they're not going to be able to come to you if there's something wrong with them or if they're having a difficult time with that. So we need to be really careful about that if we are take if we are going to take students to make sure that we have built that rapport with them to begin with and to have that open dialogue with them all the time. Weekly reflections are also something I usually do. Um, every week I'll do like a weekly reflection, like how was the week? You know, what did you think about that patient? What do you, you know, kind of going through every patient and going through certain things to allow them the opportunity to say whatever they want to say. And I always tell them this is a no judgment zone, you know, whatever you want to say, I'm not going to be offended. Just say it so we can work on it. Um, so Definitely working from a place of, I want to help you and I'm here to help you, not to judge you, not to make you feel stupid. I just want to help. So let me know how best I can help you. And that's how I usually do that. So I just want to piggyback on that whole transparency piece because I think that is huge. And I think that is critical. And I think so often on both ends, from the the educator side and the student side, when we're having a bad day or something something negative happened, say in our personal life, a lot of the times we don't want to bring that into work and have that interfere with what's going on. But there is an ounce of like, be transparent and be real with your student if you're an educator or vice versa. Like for instance, I have had family members pass away. I've had clients pass away with students when I'm getting the news. And you can't just like shove that aside and not have it affect the rest of the day. And rather than be quiet and distant and whatever, and just try to like shelter my student from it, I bring them in and I'm like, Hey, this is the reality of life. This is the reality of the position that you're in right now. Let's talk about it. I'm having a rough day. Maybe, maybe you can step it up a little bit and, and take over a little bit more responsibility today and help me out. And then also the same goes for the student if they're having a rough day and say they're at the end of their level two rotation where they should be doing a lot, but say they're having a rough day and they're like, hey, I'd really like a little assistance. I'm like, I got your back. Like, I'm here for you. We're, we're a team. We're together. And that, that really just stems from that transparency and, again, the communication of understanding where everybody is at that moment. I also Sarah, want to I love make- that. Yeah. I also want to mention one more thing that's really important that just kind of came to my head. Um, When we're working with students to think about like learning disabilities, I know that's one thing that we kind of like kind of ignore because we're thinking like UNOT, you shouldn't have any learning disabilities, which is not as far from the truth. Um, A lot of students do have certain learning disabilities, which makes it harder for them to pick up things and do certain things differently. So kind of getting to know them will allow them to open up about certain things like that. Because I know I have people that send me emails and tell me, and I'm like, are you telling you all field work 
instructor this because you're telling me this, but I hope you're telling them too, just so they know, hey, I have this disability. Or even if you don't want to tell them, I learned things differently and I learned it this way and I learned it that way. Can you please do it that way for me so that it would be easier for me to get it? So we need to also keep that in mind, like the different barriers that can be preventing that student from being able to do what they need to do. And also, if they do have a, a different ability, using that as a strength, because I've had students that have come in that have had some different abilities and they connect with clients in ways that I never would be able to. And it is absolutely amazing to sit back and watch. And I remember I had this one student and they wanted to do, they wanted to do this one thing with, a, with another student and they had kind of similar disabilities. And I was just like, I don't know if this is going to work, but I didn't say anything. And I'm like, I'm going to let them figure it out. And it was amazing. I sat back. I didn't say a word. And the most magical thing happened. And the client was happy and the student was happy. And I was like, that's a strength right there. Like, and that's something that I couldn't have done. So understanding if they need help because of a disability, but then also understanding that it can be a strength too when they are working with our clients. Absolutely. I um, have seriously had so many aha moments with you guys talking. And I um, I think coming back to that transparency piece, I think that's so huge. Um, I'm also a big fan of like dialoguing everything I do. Sarah, you brought that up. And I thought that that was, um, I think it's helpful for the patient to know why you're doing it. I think it's helpful for um, the student to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Um, I think, so we've talked a lot about I think the traits that make a good um, fieldwork educator, um, and based on your guys' responses, I'd say you're doing pretty good, <laughs> like in everything that I'm hearing. Um, what uh, I did want to tack on with the the boundary piece, Sarah, that I do think that that actually is really healthy to just be transparent of like, hey, if I'm more quiet today, I just want you to know, like, I'm not feeling great, or this happened in my family, and I think just in general, in our society, I think we do need to be a little bit more transparent. I think that that really helps because I think as a student, when you're already feeling vulnerable and if your supervisor is kind of in a funk, like you can tell that they're in a bad mood, um, you may take it personally. And I know that that's something that I've done is like, oh, she thinks I suck or I did that terrible or imposter syndrome, you know, we've had Brock's laughing, but this is, that's where my mind goes, you know, and I think you're being really um, vulnerable when you're a student. So I think just being really transparent and then it allows them the opportunity to be vulnerable as well. So, um, and that's very different than unloading all of your personal baggage, right? <laughs> um, obviously. So I really appreciate that. But I also think that that's um, an important skill for people to learn as well. That's something that I hammer home to my students till they're sick of it, is that self-reflection and being self-aware of where you're at going into mm-hmm. a therapy session or a day at work is so ridiculously important. And I know like a lot of the time, again, I harp on about it, it's from a mental health perspective but mm-hmm. I think that that's the same in all clinical situations, that self-reflection skill. And as a supervisor, I think setting that up for them to actually give them the space to sit and go, okay, so how am I going today? What's going on for me today is a good way to learn that as well. So it's not just you know, you're making the space to set up the learning. That is part of the learning. That's a, a really important skill for clinicians to have. So I think that's an awesome way of doing it. I think, um, I don't know, this might be a generalization, but I think some of the fieldwork educators that are the most challenging, meaning like that they maybe don't enjoy it and it's a really challenging experience for the student, I would argue that those are the um, therapists that are less aware of themselves maybe. Or maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe on the other end of like consumed with themselves where they really want things done their own way. But I think... That's probably my biggest takeaway from this conversation is if you're self-aware and you're aware um, enough to know how much feedback to give, your therapeutic use of self, then it really is supportive. And if you're not willing to go there, then maybe not a good, not a good option to take a student. I think is do you guys feel like that's safe to say that, you know, as a clinician, you can say, you know, I'm not in a place 
where it's good for me to take a student and and I need to take some time to reflect. I'm seeing some nods, but people people in the podcast don't know you're nodding. <laughs> I got a you thumbs definitely, up. Definitely, <laughs> like you should if you're not in a place, even if it's just you know for this particular semester. I'm I've got all this stuff going on. I'm not in a place. Then you are better off not having a student than doing a shit job with a student. Like have a semester off, take a student the next time that you're actually ready and prepared and, you know, have the capacity to put the work into actually having the student rather than just phone one in because that's not fair on whichever student you end up getting is if they come to you and you're in that sort of just phone it in stage. Like it's, yeah, it's not fair on them and it's not fair on the profession. So... Even with COVID, I had so many students ask me if they can come shadow me. And I'm like, one, you probably can't because of COVID. Two, I was not in the mental, um, what do you call it? Mental space. thought, like my mind, yeah, space. I was not in a mental space to even take a student. I'm like, I cannot take a student because I'm a mess myself. I have patients dying left and right. I can't think. I cannot have anybody here trying to learn from me. Like I cannot do that. So I think it's it's good for us to know ourselves definitely to kind of make these decisions and make the right decisions definitely. Yes. Yeah, I I completely relate with that too because I have always been taking students even like really really early on. It was embedded in my practice at the clinic that I started at. But then when I started my own private practice it had been a, a little a little while that I hadn't taken students and I really wanted to get back to taking it. But because I was building my practice off the ground and I was getting things going, I'm like, there is no way. Like no student wants to see this hot mess that I'm dealing with right now. And so I I had the wherewithal to just be like, all right, I'm gonna put pause on my fieldwork education right now. But as soon as I get that caseload and I I'm kind of like feeling my own jam there a little bit, I'm like, all right, I can start taking a student again. And it's funny because I actually got this question today from somebody that was like, you know, I'm I'm feeling a little burnt out and I'm just kind of stuck in a rut right now. And then they were like, but maybe, like maybe if I took a student, it might help me. And my immediate thought process was like, yes, take a student. It's, being a fieldwork educator is great. But then I like took a step back and I'm like, but you need to recognize where you're at. You need to recognize, will you get time? Will you get extra time outside of like direct clinical care within your organization to work with the students? Are you going to physically and mentally be able to handle the additional roles and stresses that have that come with taking a student. So as much as I'm a big proponent for everybody to be a fieldwork educator that wants to be, I'm also very, very realistic of like, but you also have to know yourself. And even the best fieldwork educators might not be able to take students all the time, given COVID, given whatever is happening during that point in time. So it's really understanding where you are as an educator or want to be educator and understanding like, is this something that I can handle right now? Or do I need to wait six months or a year or something like that? Mm -hmm. I love that you said that because I think it goes back to the intention that we first talked about. Why Mm -hmm. am I taking a student? What is the intention behind me taking a student? And if that intention is anything apart from the fact that you want to help a student to become a better, a good clinician once they graduate, then you shouldn't do it because then it's not going to help. The student is going to be miserable. You're going to be miserable doing it. So there's Mm -hmm. no point. You know, mm-hmm. come full circle. Nancy, I feel like doing a mic drop. Yeah. I just, I feel like I love doing snaps. I would do a mic drop. Yes. <laughs> yes. To all of that. Um, I, I hundred percent agree. And I don't think I could say it any better. Yeah. I think knowing where you're at and if you're not in a place being willing to say no. And I think that took a lot of courage, uh, Nancy, for you to say during COVID, like, this is not the time for me. And I think that does take a lot of courage. So if you are a field work um, educator, you're being asked, um, I think my, my feedback would be for our listeners to feel comfortable telling their supervisor where they're at. Also having that transparency of like, you know, in my personal life, I'm not at a place that I can. I would love to take a student, you know, when I'm able um, transparency people, this is what, you know, transparency. Oh, I'm getting some clips. <laughs> So does anybody have any resources, if you have any resources that you um, like or that you feel like would be helpful to share with our listeners, um, 
feel free to chime in. Sarah, do you have any you want to share? Yeah, I think I think Nancy, you touched on it right in the beginning of the conversation, but there is like AOTA has a bunch of different resources for fieldwork education. If you just go to their website, there is a ton. Level one, level two, there's uh, there's a fieldwork educator certificate program that AOTA offers, but also be in contact with the university that you're getting students from. Because I know for me, the university that I accept students from, they do a lot of education for the fieldwork educators. And I go to all of them, or I did go to all of them. Now I attend virtually. And it's really important to learn about different communication styles, stay up to date on the research, on everything that's kind of coming out in the academic land, because there are there have been changes and there are going to be a lot of changes with some of the programs and how they're structured. So uh, definitely AOTA, there's the, the certificate program. And there's also a Facebook group. There's a Fieldwork edu- Educators Facebook group. We can link to that in the show notes. And I know a lot of questions will get asked around there. But yeah, find, find support, find resources, because it's out there. I think coming from academic land. uh, You like that? (laughs) I I haven't heard it before, but I'll take it. Uh, I would say, yeah, exactly what you said. Like, uh, Obviously, AOTA is not much use to me here, but uh, get in contact with your local university or where the placements are going to be coming from because it doesn't matter what country you're in. If like most universities are screaming for educators, it's... I don't know of anyone that said, nah, we got plenty. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> so if, if you get in contact with them and say, listen, I'm keen, but I feel like I need some like upskilling or something, if they don't have the resources that they run, then they'll be able to point you in the right direction. So I'd say just get in contact with your local university, the OT school at your local university or your state's university or wherever you are. Um, I think adding to that, I think... Um, if you're a little bit nervous to kind of take a student, I think one thing what I did was I started doing it with um, allowing students to shadow me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think doing the shadowing kind of gave gave me a little bit of experience on what to do if I had a student, you know, kind of getting my feet wet a little bit. Um, so starting that way can be great for you if you're kind of, you know, nervous to kind of go full in. Um, mentorship is always a good idea to get a mentor, someone who have already done it, who have taken students to kind of get in contact with them and say, hey, how did you do it? And kind of getting some tips and tricks from them. Um, and courses, like Sarah already mentioned, if you want to take a course, AOTA do have a course. It is a little expensive, though. I'm not going to lie. Um, but that's available if you, you know, you want to go that route and get more of a formal thing going. Um, what else? I think that's I think that's pretty much it. That just reminded me of what well, just then when you were saying that is that I know it might not be the same in the States because your courses are shorter because they're masters and above. But... A lot of the bachelor's courses and stuff in other countries will have placements earlier on in the degree, which are kind of like shadowing. So I know like our course and a lot of the other courses in my state um, will have like one-week observational placements for the first years. So generally when we're setting up clinicians in the health service to start taking students, we'll start them with those. So, you know, that's there's not a lot of... Uh, like uh, assessment of the student that the clinician needs to do, but they get used to, you know, having another person follow them around and just get used to being able to try and convey what they're doing and explain what they're doing to someone else. So it can be if if your local again get in touch with your local university, they'll explain what options you've got. Um, it's not always just the big, you know, ten to fifteen weeks, depending on where you are. Uh, placements where you have to get them ready to be practicing as a clinician. There are usually some other options throughout the degree that you might be able to start with uh, and at least sort of ease your way into it. Yeah, I know because I started looking into getting my doctorate and a lot of the courses have like elective that you can take, like electives on different things. I think that AOTA should think about adding some kind of elective um, when you're going to a T-school. If you want to be a fieldwork educator, take this course or this one class or, you know, whatever to kind of get people um, a little bit more exposure to what it may look like, even though it's not the same thing, obviously, but at least get some idea how will they make money um, then how will they make money <laughs> right <laughs> i'm allowed to say that because i'm in a different country so it's fine 
all of the rest of you keep quiet. Don't say anything. Right. I don't, I don't, yeah. <laughs> no, no <Right>. comment. <laughs> I don't think about it from a money perspective, but obviously they do. So I'm just staying on mute. That's what I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to. That's safe. That's safe. I'm glad I have this mute button. That's helpful. Yeah. I'm just going to keep I, clicking that. One more thing that I was going to throw into is also conferences, because a lot of times there might be presenters that will come and talk about fieldwork education. I know AOTA, when we get back to resuming in-person conferences, I believe there's a pre-conference institute. It's like a full day all about fieldwork education. And then there's some various short courses and presentations and posters sprinkled throughout the conference. So that's another great way to start getting connected to the resources and the information that's out there as well. So when you go to conferences or if you're attending virtually, like double check and see if there are anything specifically for fieldwork education. A book that I really enjoyed that I think just helpful in life for communication is Crucial Conversations. The book. It's an oldie but a goodie. I don't know if you guys have read it. Um, but it actually has um not heard not heard of crucial conversations, Nancy. Okay. You guys have it. Oh my gosh, it's actually sitting here in my office. I feel like I should hold it up, but then I'd have to rummage through my box of books. But um anyway, it has specific ways to just communicate, especially during challenging conversations. And it even has kind of like flow charts, like, okay, where do you start? And one of the biggest pieces is like create a place of safety, like where the person feels comfortable talking with you, which we've already touched on. So um, we'll also link that. It's uh, yeah. So you guys can check it out. Nancy, this has been so much fun. I want to thank you from all of us at the round table for coming. I've certainly loved this conversation and I feel like um, it's actually really re-inspired me um, to take on a student again. So thank you so much for coming and chatting with us. Absolutely. You're welcome. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. This was this is good. And where can people find you if they're looking to learn, learn a little bit more about you? Okay. So I'm on YouTube, Lovely OT on YouTube. And I am also on Instagram, Lovely with two Y's underscore OT on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Extra lovely. You need two Y's. <laughs> lovely. She's too lovely. She, she needs to. Okay. I love that. Okay. And then Sarah, what about you? Where can we find you? You can find me at otforlife.com. And this has been amazing. And I'm sure you guys can just tell like my passion levels just like went through the roof because I love (laughs) talking about fieldwork education and I love talking about students. And I think I want to end with something that when this happens, it just makes my day. When, when my students come to me and they tell me that when they become a practitioner, that they want to take students, I'm like, my job is done. Like that means <laughs> I did a good job. I've instilled that to, into them. And hopefully if we can continue to promote really good learning opportunities and education for our students, that can kind of continue on throughout and yeah, just really do good for the profession. So I'll end with All that. right. You deserve a mic drop too. I mean, snaps all you guys. I'm loving this. That's awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Okay. And Brock, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at occupiedpodcast.com. All the links and everything are all there. Uh, I was expecting Sarah to go, when I grow up, I want to be just like you, Sarah. Because um, that's what I'd probably say. Uh, but yeah, no, it's been really fun. Thanks a lot, guys. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you, guys. Um, Okay, and you guys can find me at incorporatemindfulness.com. Um, and when I grow up, I do want to be Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Not, if you guys it's not about me, all right. It's what would you guys do? Like that's what I tell my students when they're like, Well, what would Sarah do? I'm like, No, 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 no. It's what would you do in this situation? So I need that on a bracelet. You know, what what, oh, what would a, Sarah do? That's a sign of a good fieldwork educator, Sarah. Not not making it about you. Proud of you. All right. So if you guys enjoyed this episode, like and share the podcast with a friend. And if you want to get in touch with the OT Roundtable, head over to otroundtable.com. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>